I've been assigned the topic of speaking on communion. My understanding is that you've begun a series talking about the church, life of the church, and last week talked about baptism. And so what I hope to do this morning is to talk to you about the Lord's table communion. It's kind of a strange topic. We're not taking communion this morning. Uh, That's going to happen in two weeks here. But I think this will be helpful for us. It's been helpful for me. So if you would, in your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Not the institution of the Lord's Supper, but where Paul reminds us of what it is there for. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the context actually of a rebuke to the Corinthians, Paul delivers this word starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's one time in my life when I ate something that was so good that I actually cried. And of course, it was at Bojangles. It was a Bowberry biscuit. It was the weekend of my brother's wedding, and we were driving down to Atlanta, and we stopped on the way for lunch, and we got some greasy fried chicken. And I had never been to a Bojangles, and he said, you got to try this thing. It's like a like a biscuit, but they just put a bunch of icing on top. So I said, great, let's try it. And I ate it, and I, like an icing tear came down from my eye. It was so glorious. I lo- and as it turns out, I am not alone. There is a Facebook group of Bowberry Biscuit fans, 293 strong and counting. You could join it today. And basically, they just share pictures of them eating Bowberry biscuits and loving it, I guess. To this day, it's hard for me to eat one of those biscuits without getting a little bit emotional, thinking about my brother's wedding and the joy in that season of life. Why is that? Why does food do that to us? Sometimes. I think in part it's because the way that the Lord made food is it connects us to memories in a profound way. Certain meals just take you back. It's a kind of like food nostalgia, a memory of cuisine. Maybe for you it's your mom's homemade cooking. Maybe it's that one fancy restaurant, a certain brand of coffee. Maybe it is just the heaven sent poultry of Chick fil A. May he be blessed forever. When you eat it, 
You remember where you were, what you felt, how it tasted. And so is it any wonder then, brothers and sisters, that when the Lord wanted to give us a sign to remember something profound about himself, he gave us a meal. He gave us food. Since eating helps us potently remember the Lord's Supper is a powerful grace to help believers remember the greatest truth in all of their lives, and that is the life and death of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is called many things. Communion is a common one. The Lord's table, the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, the cup, the wafer. It's what Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 calls the Lord's Supper. This reality in the life of the church has actually been the matter of much debate and even death over the last 2,000 years. This is probably one of the institutions of the church over which more blood has been spilled than anything else. John Hooper was burned at the stake because of what he believed about communion. The Marian martyrs gave their lives defying the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. And in the fourth century, there's a little boy, 12 years old, named Tarsisius, who so loved the communion bread that when he was tasked to bring it across town to a church, he, he was jumped by a band of marauders trying to steal his food from him. And rather than give them the food, he clutched it to his chest as they beat him to death. And yet, in many of our churches today, I think the Lord's table just feels like kind of a weird appendage. Like kind of a strange ritual that we kind of got to go through Because that's what we do, I guess, for Christians. Jesus said it, so we're supposed to. But we don't really know why we're doing it or what's it there for. Why do we do this regular meal, this ritual obligation? I think for most people, communion just feels really sober, really solemn. It's like that time in the service when everyone just stops talking and stops looking at each other. And maybe they'll read someone's name from the pulpit afterwards and that gets intense and At our church during COVID, we just swapped the like, you know, crackers and juice for these horrible little like one piece containers. You put the film off the top and it's like a, I mean, it's straight up styrofoam. It's not even a little bit food. And, and then you crack the rest of it and it's, it's been sitting there for a while. So it's like fermented grape juice. It's pretty bad. Like that's what people think of, I think, when they conceive of communion, And for many today, communion isn't even a part of the life of the church. You just do it wherever. I've been to several weddings where people have done communion. I've been to nursing homes where they've done communion. Or more recently, one of the phenomena of our day is virtual communion. Which, by the way, don't do that. (laughs) Not legit. Virtual communion. There's literally a thing called Dr. Marsha McPhee's Comfort Food Feast of Love Liturgy. Where you can eat cornbread and sweet tea at home for your communion. What on earth? (laughs) So, I mean, what is the Lord's table anyway? I mean, there's all these different ideas about it. What are we supposed to do with this? What is this odd little Christian tradition supposed to be about? As kind of an introduction to this, I just want to give you three introductory kind of nuts and bolts questions about the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to get into the meat of this. But 
First question, what is the Lord's Supper? What is it? And very simply, it's an ordinance of the church. There's two ordinances that Jesus left for his church. One is baptism. The other is the Lord's table. It's a repeated ritual with a purpose. And we get this in this text in Luke 22 when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He's instituting a repeated ritual for the church. And we know that he meant for this to be an ongoing practice because it shows up in 1 Corinthians 11. Some 20 plus years later, the church is still observing this thing that Jesus did the night before he died. Paul says he received it from the Lord as an instruction. He delivered it to you to do with some regularity. And I think ancient rituals can feel strange to us mostly in Bible church land, because we just don't have a lot of those. Um, you, you do have rituals in your life. You, you pledge allegiance, maybe you used to, pledge allegiance to the flag at school, uh, at a football game, the very beginning, you play the national anthem. I was in a fraternity in college. We had all of these rituals and prayers and things that we did that were from back in the 1800s and nobody we just repeat them we have no idea what they meant so you get the idea there are rituals that you do in your life that are supposed to have some kind of significance they're supposed to connect you in some way to your past now when you think of those rituals you might have like a bad association with that you might think like this is some kind of weird cult drinking the kool-aid kind of thing maybe that's how you think of it what communion is supposed to do is it's supposed to feel ancient. It's supposed to feel out of our time. It's supposed to feel transcendent in that way. And, and that's kind of the point, even though it feels strange to us to connect back to something before the age of the iPhone. It's a command of Jesus to his people that we must repeat. We don't have a lot of these rituals. We just have these two. So we do them. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Secondly, how is the Lord's Supper supposed to work? Let me give you two ways that it does not work. Number one, it is not a magic meal. Okay? This is the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, the guy stands up front, oh, and he breaks the thing, and it turns into the body of Jesus. Like, actually, the body of Jesus. Actually, the blood of Jesus there. That's why when Martin Luther did his first communion, he totally believed in that. Uh, he prayed the prayer. He thought, this is now the blood of Jesus. He froze. He couldn't even move because he was so scared that he would drop one drop of the blood of Jesus on the ground. So no, that's not what happens. We're we're not um, cannibals. That's not what's happening. It's not a sacrifice. We're not repeating the sacrifice of Christ anyway. It's not a saving ritual. There's nothing about taking communion that earns you merit before God that gets you into heaven. It's not like if you do communion really well, then you'll get a big apartment in heaven. That's that's not how that works. (laughs) What is it? How does it work? It's a memorial supper. That's Jesus' own language. Do this in remembrance of me. Literally, it could be translated in my memorial. This is very much in the flow and the tradition of the Old Testament feasts, which are also memorials. They're saying, hey, remember, look back to that thing that I did And consider it when you eat. That's very much what's happening here. Celebrate this. Keep it 
before your eyes. Teach it to the next generation. Be forced to consider the great acts of God for the sake of his people on a regular basis for your spiritual benefit. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that communion is effective. It works internally in your heart. It's not an external mechanic. You just do the thing and something magic happens. It's only effective if there's something going on inside of you. Let me put it this way. Communion is like a food sermon. It's an exposition by eating. Or, as Thomas Watson called it, a soul festival. It preaches to us by signs the life and death of Jesus. It is a feast for the heart, not the stomach. It's a meal with a memory, and it is supposed to take you back to that night. So third question, who is this table for? The Lord's Supper is only for the Lord's people. It's a family meal. If you're a Christian, you take it. If you're not, you don't. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, he says, this is my body, which is for you, you, my disciples. So do this in remembrance of me. So that's who this is for. Probably you're familiar at our church as here when we do communion, someone up front will explain, hey, if you're not a believer and you're here, just let the cup pass by you. If you're a believer, you really should partake in this. This is when the family comes together around the table, so to speak. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus and they benefit spiritually from it because they have been given spiritual stomachs to digest the gospel truths rehearsed in the supper. J.C. Ryle said it this way, quote, to enjoy a spiritual feast, we must have a spiritual heart and taste and appetite. To suppose that the Lord's table can do any good to an unspiritual man is as foolish as to put bread and wine in the mouth of a dead person. End quote. Okay. So that's what communion is. That's how it works and that's who it's for. Let me just, before we even get into this, appeal to you for a second. Think back, if you've been a Christian for some time, think back to the last time you took communion. If your experience is anything like mine, maybe you sometimes wonder what on earth am I supposed to be doing in this moment? You sit there and I mean, there's like some music playing and you know that it's about Jesus and you're like, okay, I guess I need to pray. (sighs) What do I do? Like, what am I supposed to pray? How am I? Do you have that experience? Does it feel that way for you sometimes? Like you're just kind of going through the motions. You don't really know how to, benefit from it. That's, that's who I want to talk to this morning. If that's you, if, if you feel like this is, a, this is a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around, that's who I want to talk to. What are you supposed to do at communion? Here's what it is. The central thing about what communion is, is this. Communion is an invitation to feast on Jesus at his table. Communion is an invitation to feast on Jesus at his table. And I want to show you that in two parts, not surprisingly, one part, the bread, the other part, the cup. 
first. Feasting on Jesus at his table looks like eating the bread of Jesus' life. Eating the bread of Jesus' life. In order for this heavenly food to transport us back in our memory, we need to be reminded of the scene where Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper. So, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. This shows up in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke's account is the longest, the fullest, and I think will be the most helpful. What memory is this supposed to jog for us when we hold those little wafers and those tiny little cups? This, this scene, the night before Jesus' death, and I'll just kind of explain it as we walk through it. Luke chapter 22, verse 14, and when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. The hour is Thursday night of Passion Week. He has sent out his disciples to prepare a Passover meal. According to the Galilean tradition, they would do it on Thursday night. The Judeans would do it on Friday. So they're doing it in this upper room that's been prepared. He's reclining. They'd be laying down kind of all around a large table. It wouldn't have looked like, you know, the Last Supper where they're all on the one side of the table. It's not how that works. Probably round. They're all sitting around, laying down. John's head is on Jesus' chest. Judas is over there scheming. And Jesus says, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This Passover meal, Jesus calls it that. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. It is rich with significance. Uh, Communion is not just like Passover 2.0. It's not just another version of the Passover. But it does take some ideas from the old covenant Passover that the Jews celebrated. The Passover is instituted in Exodus 12 as a memorial feast that looked back to the redemptive act of God in the Exodus. Josephus says that at this time, on this very day, there would have been probably something like 250,000 lambs that were slain in Jerusalem to feed the two million some people who were gathered there. It's a bloodbath in order to celebrate this feast. And Jesus is right in the middle of it, dining In verse 17, it says he took a cup, actually not the communion cup, different one. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the way that Passover would have worked in Jesus' day, you may have heard this before, is that they would start with, there are four total cups, they would start with one cup, and then they would do some ceremonial washing, and then there'd be another cup, and then they would eat the meal, Third cup, which is the communion one. Third cup, and then they would sing some songs. The fourth cup, and they're done. So this is the first cup, and they're dividing it amongst each other. It's the cup of blessing. They're singing psalms. Uh, This is probably when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, astounding them. In verse 19, the meal begins. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is bread, the unleavened bread of the Passover, also with some bitter herbs, and they would have roasted a lamb and had the whole body there. And Jesus just takes the bread of it, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, they take the third cup, probably the communion cup, 
And they pass that around. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, giving it a new signification. It's followed by a fourth. They sing some psalms and then they go out to the garden. That's the scene. That's the memory. That's what you should have in your mind when you're taking communion is that moment in the life of Jesus. And in the middle of it, Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what does that mean? What on earth does that mean? How does this little piece of wheat help me feast on Jesus? Well, first, we feast on his sustaining life. He says, this, meaning the unleavened bread, probably look like a pita. This is my body. This is my body. It's a signification that this whole grain homily represents his body, his flesh, his physical frame, which is about to suffer. And if you're tracking, if you're remembering that scene in that night, you should be thinking, why didn't he just do that with the lamb? Isn't Jesus the Passover lamb? Wouldn't that be an easy? Why, why go for the bread? Well, he's going to talk about his death in a second with the cup. But first, he wants to talk about his life-giving life. And so he breaks bread. Why bread? Well, you remember in Jesus' ministry when he was sitting on a hillside and there were a whole bunch of hungry people around. And what did they want? Bread. What did they not have a lot of? Bread. Except for that one little boy and so multiply. It's like Panera all of a sudden. And then they keep following him. Keep feeding us this food. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not understanding. I am the bread of life. And they still don't understand. So he ups the ante. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got no part with me. And then he finishes this by saying, John 6, 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying that when you feed on him, he sustains your life forever. Now, how does feeding work? Well, he explains it in this passage. He compares it to belief. How do you feed on Jesus? You believe in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You give yourself wholly to Jesus. I mean, has it ever struck you that the symbol that God gives us in communion is like an activity? One where you eat something, you ingest it, it goes into you. And then that food gives you nutrients. I mean, not like a lot, but like it gives you some nutrients so that you can live. Why is that? Well, because that's what the bread of life does for you. He sustains your life for eternity. As you believe in him, to feed on Jesus is to believe in Jesus and to abide in him, to be in union with him, to be a branch on the vine and an arm on the body. 
In other words, as continually eating bread sustains your body for physical life, continually believing in Jesus sustains your soul for eternal life beginning now. That's what the communion bread preaches. And that's why Jesus uses this image of the bread. In a sense, you are what you eat. You eat the bread of life, you get life. Faith, then, is like the Christian's food supply chain. It's the dasher bringing your Panda Express to the door as much as your arteries can handle. Here's here's what Jesus is after in this bread. Because he gave his body as an offering for you, his life can now be your life if you take hold of it. Jesus' life, his strength and his power become your life. He strengthens you. He nourishes you by his life. So as you flee from the Egypt of your sin, you take the bread with you to sustain you for the journey. Every ounce of spiritual good, joy, grace, hope, peace, and thankfulness comes from Christ through believing in him. This is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that you and I depend fully on Jesus for our life and everything. Here's how one of my favorite preachers, Robert Murray McChain, said this. The Lord's table is a solemn declaration in the sight of the whole world that you have been put into the clefts of the smitten rock and that you are feeding on the honeyed treasure there. It is declaring that you have sat down under Christ's shadow and that you are comforted and nourished by the fruit of that tree of life. It is saying, I have come to trust under the shadow of his wings and now I drink of the river of his pleasures. It is a sweet declaration of your own helplessness and the weakness and that Christ is all your strength and all of your life. End quote. Jesus is the bread of life and he sustains your life. That's not the only thing that his life does. Also, when we feast on Jesus to sustain our lives, he unites us to one another. It is a uniting life as well. I just want to show you briefly a a word in 1 Corinthians 10, also dealing with this meal, where Paul says, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, this is an interesting word, participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Participation, it's the word koinonia, it's a word for fellowship. Shared life. That when you take of the bread, you are saying, I share a life with Jesus because he has given his to me. But more than that, Paul's after, I think, something more horizontal here. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. As you are united to Christ, then you are united to the body of Christ. You become one, even as we just heard. 
Jesus says, this is my body, singular. He doesn't have many bodies. You have your body of Christ. You have your body of Christ. No, he's got the one, and all of us go to the one. One table, one Lord. He's the hub. We're the spokes. He's the foundation. We're the building. And isn't it, isn't it just fascinating, again, the dynamics of a meal, how meals bring people together? This past Monday, it snowed a whole bunch in Northern Virginia, and our flight got canceled, so I got to hang out with my kids until our power went out. It was like 400,000 people without power at that point. So we said, what could we possibly do? Where could we go in our time of trouble and anguish and need to fill our hearts and our stomachs? And of course, the answer was Olive Garden. So when you're here, you're family. So we went, and our, our dear waiter, Dwayne, uh, we ordered some salad and some soups and some breadsticks, and wouldn't you know it, when we ate them, he brought us more. Just kept bringing them, like his endless salad. And my kids were being nuts and running around <laughs> playing, and there were some sweet ladies sitting at a table nearby, and they just picked them up. <laughs> Just started playing with them. I don't know, something about like a blizzard just causes people to be sweet to each other. And they're just playing with my kids. And I was like, this really is like being a part of a family. This is nice. I like Olive Garden. There's something boundary breaking about sharing a meal. You know, the problem in Corinth was that the opposite was happening. When Paul addresses the Corinthians about communion, they're going to the table and the rich people are getting fat and drunk and the poor people are showing up. They don't get anything. That's because in their day, it was like a whole meal thing. There was division at the Lord's table. And Paul says, that makes no sense. It's like a high school lunchroom instead of communion. He he even says in 1 Corinthians 11, What you're doing when you meet together, this isn't even the Lord's table anymore because you're so divided. Communion reminds us that we have union with Christ, but it also reminds us that we have unity with one another in Christ. We're all sharing the same meal at the same table, no distinctions. As we sang earlier today, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace indeed. So the next time that you take communion and get to the part where they're praying for the bread, the wafer, the cracker, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, would you feast on the life of Jesus? the life that sustains you and that binds you together. His goodness, his mercy, his righteousness, his gentleness, and his love for you and for his church. Would you preach that from your stomach to your heart? 
Admit that you're hungry. Confess that you're weak. Be frank with Jesus. Tell him how desperately you need him. You need the bread of life more than you need any other meal. That's not what you're thinking right now. I can tell you're hungry. But believe it. (laughs) The reality is, friends, we don't actually go hungry, do we? We just eat fast food, spiritually. We're always eating, spiritually speaking. The question is, what's your diet? Is it giving you strength for humble dependence on the Lord? Or is it fattening you up with pride? What is your spiritual diet? Communion is a reminder, a peak banquet feast to remind your soul, I need Jesus and he meets my need. That's part one of what we do at communion. The second part is that we drink the cup of Jesus' death. We eat the bread of Jesus' life and then we drink the cup of Jesus' death. If it can be believed, the feast gets even better. Having been fed by the spiritual food of Jesus' life, our Lord gives us a second sign in the communion meal to feast on and that is his death. Do you notice Jesus said, this cup is my blood What does blood signify? Death. And Paul even makes it more clear. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This has two angles to it as well. First, that we feast on his atoning death. It is an atoning death. I mean, the question that you need to ask yourself when you're holding that little cup How is Jesus' death a good thing? It's a horrific thing, isn't it? It's the most unjust murder that has ever happened. It is vile and wicked. It is the hour of darkness. But how is it good also? Matthew chapter 26 in the same account of the Meal gives us this additional word from Jesus. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out. Notice he doesn't say drank. Poured out. That's Old Testament sacrificial offering kind of language. There's a death, the slaying of a substitute animal. That's the concept that's being invoked. And it's being poured out for the purpose, he says, Jesus himself says, my death, the primary purpose here in mind is the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, what glory is in those five words? For the forgiveness of sins. That is all our life in Christ. Jesus' sacrificial death as our Passover lamb shields us from the wrath of Almighty God that we deserve. Because Jesus' blood is on the doorpost of our hearts, God passes us over and does not pour out his wrath on us, but instead extinguishes it on the cross of Jesus Christ, on his own son. And we are not devoured by the holy flame of hellfire that is ours by right. 
Psalm 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the cup you and I should be drinking. You're the wicked of the earth. I'm the wicked of the earth. And you know what that tastes like? Revelation 14.10. He also will drink, he, the unbeliever, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. It's like a cup of flaming bleach drinking for eternity. And that's what you and I deserve. But Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But what? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus drank your cup so that you could drink his. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won. That is why Chrysostom called the Lord's table the feast of the cross. It is a death meal, which is life to us. In the cup that we drink is the reminder of the cup that Jesus drank in the forgiveness that we have in him. Brothers and sisters, can I say it this way? The communion cup does not have your name on it because your cup is in a heap of empty cups at the foot of a bloody cross. Instead, you drink of Jesus' death and are forgiven of your sins. The Puritan Robert Layton said, but what precious consolation and grace doth a believer meet with this banquet? How richly is the table furnished to his eye? What plentiful varieties employ his hand and taste? And yet there is nothing but one here. But that one is all things to the believing soul. It finds his love is the sweeter Sweeter than the richest wine to the taste or best odors to the smell. And that delightful word of his, thy sins are forgiven for thee, is the only music to a distressed conscience. Oh, the glorious feast of the cross of Jesus, where you and I stand forgiven. And not only that, his death is an atoning death, but it is also, the cup reminds us, a redeeming death. Jesus calls it the new covenant in my blood. In his death, Jesus not only extinguished the fire of hell reserved for you, but he also established a new covenant and invited you in. He made the Mosaic covenant obsolete and put in its place a new promise for his purchased people to redeem us from our sins. And when the Mosaic covenant was first inaugurated, there was blood. 
It was a bloody affair. Exodus 24, Moses, hey, you guys going to obey this? Yeah, we're going to obey it. Okay, cool. Tons of blood. Did they obey it? No. So what happens? Jeremiah 31. There's going to be a new covenant. You couldn't keep the other one, so I'm making a new one. So that my spirit will be in you and my laws will be on your heart and you'll actually obey it. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus' death buys you out from under sin's power. Not only does he pay the penalty of sin, he also breaks the power of sin in your life. He takes ownership of us as Lord. We become his slaves, obedient to him. That's why it's so important to come to the Lord's table with reverence, with awe. You know, sin really wants you to starve. It's going to tell you, I can make you full. I can satisfy your thirst. But sin will starve you every time. You'll die of dehydration if all you drink is the cup of sin. The cup of Christ, his death, that can fill you up. That can satisfy you. That can do what sin promises it can do. And so in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for being divisive at the table and says, listen, you need to come to the table and examine yourselves. What what he's saying here is, it just doesn't make a lick of sense for you to come to the Lord's table and hold on to sin while you're drinking a cup that says all my sin has been broken. I've been redeemed from this sin, but I'm going to harbor it in my heart. It'd be like, Pouring gasoline on a fire while you're dousing it with water at the same time. It'd be like getting pulled over by a cop for speeding. And he says, you know, I'm going to let you off with a warning. And you say, thanks, officer. And you speed away. It doesn't make any sense. It's contradiction to hold on to sin when you are holding the sin-breaking and killing cup of Jesus Christ. It would be like saying in Hebrews 10, 29, I'm willing to trample on the Son of God, to profane the blood of his covenant. Part of the glory of the feast of the Lord's table is to remember that Christ has died to inaugurate a new covenant and breaking sin sway over you. I mean, if you're just being honest, how often do we satisfy our souls or think we can at the devil's diner. There's so many cheap meals you can get for your soul on your phone. When we have been prepared a feast in the Lord Jesus Christ.
I wonder if that's still you here today. If you have no interest in being satisfied in the life and death of Jesus. Maybe for you, you're like, man, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard because I've never done a communion thing and I don't want to and it's strange and it's weird and I don't like it. Stop talking about communion. Friend, if that's you, you, you must know that your, your soul won't be satisfied by whatever you're trying to feed it. You're going hungry and there is a feast right before you. Jesus can satisfy you. I mean, what is it that is so good that Jesus is not better than it? Video games? Relationship? Career? What is it? What you need to hear friend, is that the feast of Jesus, his life, his death, is the only meal that can make your soul full. That's why he died, to come to you, to give you himself. Here's my body, here's my blood, take it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you food. So would you do it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't starve at a buffet. Don't go home spiritually hungry today. Call on him. Throw yourself on his mercy. Run to the table and take a seat. There's one more thing I want to show you about communion that we often don't talk about. And it's this, that communion is a foretaste of hope. A foretaste of a meal that is to come. Twice in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, I really am looking forward to another meal. (laughs) I'm instituting this one knowing that this isn't the last. There's a meal that's coming in the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to eat again until I eat with you in it. That is what the Lord's Supper does. It not only points us backwards to the cross in the past. It not only reminds us of our life in Jesus right now in the present. It points us forward to the future, which has a feast. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus says... Communion is his word fulfilled in this feast, which is mentioned in Matthew 8, Luke 12, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 46, Zephaniah 1. It's a future banquet pictured in the Old Testament. But there's one passage, I think, that outshines the rest. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. I want you to see this last picture of this glorious meal. You thought Bojangles was good. It's got nothing. Isaiah chapter 25, the very end, when Christ comes to bring his people to himself. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, on this mountain, 
the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And here's what we're going to say on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Can you taste it even now? The glory of that meal. Right now, you're just thinking about lunch, aren't you? (laughs) You're just thinking, I got to go across the street, get some bergs. Just take a second before you move on. And when you're holding that bread in that cup, take a second and taste the feast that is to come. You've never had food so good. (laughs) Because it's all of Jesus. One of my favorite hymns. How sweet And awful is the place with Christ behind the doors where everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Just speaking about this feast. And while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Here's the answer. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Friend, have you refused to taste the glory of Jesus at his table? I beg you, don't anymore. Do not starve yourself at a feast. And know, beloved, that the feast of communion today is just a crumb compared to the feast of heaven. Because it's there that we will no longer feast on him by faith, but we will feast with him by sight. Blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great almighty God, Oh, we thank you for the bountiful feast that you have laid before us in your son, Jesus Christ, by his death, by his life. That you have given us such a sweet picture 
a food sermon to teach our souls and feed us what we need more than anything else. Oh God, I pray for the students and the young adults here. May they be marked by full bellies. Lives that are sated with the blood and the bread. May their whole life be feasting on Jesus. May we feast on him even now as we sing. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.